0: This is Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast, bringing you insights and views from across Asia's food value chain. Now for today's interview. Hi, everybody. I'm Duke Kip, host of Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast. And uh, we're excited today about uh, our, our show. We uh, are specifically we're excited about the, the fact that this is our 10th episode, which is a nice milestone for the podcast, and also we're talking about a timely and topical issue uh, on the show today, specifically climate change and how it's impacting and related to food security across Asia. There's no one perhaps better suited for that discussion than our guest today, Dr. Paul Tang, is a managing director and dean of the National Institute of Education International and also a senior fellow and advisor for food security at the Rajaratnam School of International Studies, or RSIS.
1: Hi, Dr. Tang, how are you? I'm fine, uh, Duke, thanks very much. And again, thanks for having me on your program.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I like to start uh, out of the gate, uh, getting into again, the, the impact of climate change and food security by uh, unpacking something that just happened recently. I know you're aware of the United Nations uh, International or other intergovernmental panel on um, uh, climate change recently released a um, report that got a lot of coverage uh, uh, Frankly, a, a fairly dire report, warning against human-induced irreversible climate change, and calling for rapid uh, actions and global cooperation. Specifically, the the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres it's called it a "code red for humanity," which is a pretty a pretty stark language. I'd, I'd like to ask you, just out of the gate here, what does this mean for food security, and particularly here in Asia?
1: Well, you know, this warning by the UN Secretary General has some really serious implications for food security, especially in Asia, for, for many different reasons. I think as many of us know, food security depends on Asian countries having the capacity to produce some level of food to meet their needs, and most of the projected climate change effects will affect crops and livestock. Okay, that's my kind of opening point there. Now, if you look at some more specific enough you know, points, you know, expert groups such as those from the International Rice Research Institute and the Asian Development Bank Institute, have shared many possible scenarios, uh, which include double-digit increases uh, in the price of staples and also reductions in the yield, especially of staple crops like rice and wheat. And this increase in prices is going to affect consumers and basically undermine the achievement of our sustainable development goals especially number one which is zero poverty, number two which is zero hunger and of course number 10 which is inequality. We're already in fact starting to see this happen. Now as we all also know, Asia is currently already a net food deficit region and has to import many many basic food items from all over the world so any potential reduction in Asia's agricultural production due to climate change will lead to reduced domestic or regional supplies and then threaten the food security of the farmers in the countryside as well as the consumers in cities. And quite frankly, I think price increases will be inevitable as supplies decline. And also because Asia imports such a large amount of food and feed material from other regions such as the Americas, climate change is also expected to reduce the surpluses that these countries in America's world have for exports, particularly for soybeans, maize and wheat. And again, what will happen is that this will lead to increased cost of imports and down the value chain to increase food prices for consumers. For example, take Indonesia, you know, where I think the noodles are really, very popular, you know, kind of consumer item, and Indonesia is one of the world's largest importers of wheat, okay? Because it doesn't produce enough, and we don't have enough in the Asian region either. So all these will have to come from outside, okay? And we all know that any increase in food prices will drive more people to food insecurity. So so in short, you know, kind of the, the quick response, I think, to your question is, food security is really under serious threat on climate change, if mitigation does not result in any corrections. So, so thank you. That, is, that was a good question.
0: Yeah, it's well, a great answer. Um, and I think that the fact that Asia's deficit with food production is, is eye-opening too, I I don't think we understand that fully in the impact we were already sitting today. So to kind of drill a little deeper into this, um, it all starts in the farm, of course, here mm-hmm. in Asia, as far as food production. Right. So that that brings me to uh, to a point I wanted to raise here um, as it relates to the prevalence of, you know, prolonged droughts, floods, erratic weather patterns that we're mm-hmm. seeing continuing to, you know, more prevalent uh, playing out across Southeast Asia. The impact it's having on the smallholders here, the home of the most smallholders in the world, uh, as far as, far as uh, what it, it means to them. So in the first quarter of this year, uh, new new data, CropLife Asia, um, surveyed over 520 rice, corn, and fruit and vegetable farmers from the biggest crop producing countries within Southeast Asia, Thailand, Vietnam, Indonesia, the Philippines. And uh, not surprisingly, now I, I think everybody understands over a high percentage of those folks, over 68% have said that climate change really is a, a key challenge for them. So in light of that, and, and may be obvious to everyone, that being the one of the obstacles they're facing, what do we need to do to better ensure these smallholders are really enabled to meet this growing and daunting challenge? Well, you know, for a start, I think, let me just affirm this. I
1: think we know that for most farmers in Asia, climate change is not a future threat, but it's really become a current existential threat. And this is evidenced by the floods and the droughts that we read so much about these last few weeks, you know, caused by unexpected severe weather. And of course, in some regions like Southeast Asia, you know, the increased frequency of such severe weather events has already taken a a big toll on smallholder farmers. So to me, the crop life Asia survey results are not a surprise at all. In fact, I'll be surprised if if you didn't find out, you know, you know, if you found the contrary, quite frankly. So smallholders, you know, we all know are among the least protected from climate change. I think that's a given, really. The global community can help through supportive policies, measures, and technologies, both hard and soft. Let me delve a little bit deeper into this. I think at the highest levels of government, policies which explicitly recognize the threat of climate change and put into place measures to protect and help farmers to recover from climate-induced calamities will go a long way. Example, the provision of insurance coverage, uh, measures for mobilizing food reserves to support smallholders if their crops are wiped out, provision of planting material and other inputs after a climate change calamity. And also the provision of early warning services on impending events and so on. Really, if you look back in the recent history, you know when Typhoon Haiyan hit the Philippines, one of the worst typhoons ever. Okay? after the, the typhoon effects, you know, had gone away, farmers really felt the need for planting material, more seeds to grow their rice. Okay? so that's one of the areas that we have going to focus on. We mustn't, you know, focus just on the immediate, right? On the recovery phase as well, which is so key, really. So it really pays for us to be prepared okay, for the future, you know, climate change severe events. Now I really feel that there's an urgent need for us to develop and transfer what I call hard technologies to farmers to help them to adapt to climate change effects, like drought and flooding, as you mentioned. One simple example that I can give is crop varieties. That's a hard technology. This emergence tolerant rise. Or the drought tolerant maize are just two examples. Okay? Through breeding efforts, you give the farmer the seed from the best science to help him to adapt. Yeah? And here's where the private sector input, you know uh, companies can, can really play a big role to spread the technologies because the public sector has always been limited in these extension services. Yeah? So the private sector indeed has a role to play. Now the other part I wanted to kind of quickly mention are the soft technologies. These are what I call the knowledge technologies. Okay? So I think there's going to be increased emphasis on developing and getting farmers to adopt these soft technologies. One example is in the case of rice again, the alternate wet, dry cultivation of rice. Now, to me, that's soft knowledge. It's not a hard technology, right? And there are many other examples of soft technologies. For example, you know, changing your rotation pattern of crops and all that. But, but this, this research, you know, have to be done because they are so ecology and, and kind of location-specific. Okay? So, so it's left basically to, to, the, to the governments, you know, to do some of this research, perhaps working with international groups. But uh, ultimately, though, ultimately, I think anything that can help to anticipate, to reduce, or to ameliorate the impact of climate
0: change on or small will help us in the long term. Great answer again. Thank you. Thanks for that. I, I, three things you just said that keep I keep peering in my head right now. Uh, you, it's about that long-term vision, you said, the role of the private sector and, of course, technology, uh, where, where this is all heading. But I want to go back to one more thing you raised in the previous answer, and that was around the SDGs, mm-hmm. the sustainable development goals. And so it's maybe, um, I think it's pretty widely known, at least by our audience, we talked about this quite a bit. Um, This this big discussion that the United Nations is leading this year, specifically around the SDGs, the Food Systems Summit, not that long ago, the pre-summit concluded uh, in Rome, and the summit itself is on tap for end of September, I think, in New York, and of course, Mm -hmm. virtual discussions and independent dialogues and a variety of discussions are happening leading up to that event. But but again, uh, since we talked about, uh, I know a lot to this audience, I won't go back and rehash all that, but I just, I want to ask you specifically, if you consider again, in the wake of COVID-19 and all that's happened, uh, it's really exposed the, the, the fragility and the vulnerability of mm-hmm. food systems. In your, in your view, are there one or two must-haves with respect to how making our food systems more resilient going forward?
1: You know, Let, let me start by making a rather facetious comment. <laughs> I think that there are more than one or two sure. haves. <laughs> because <laughs> no, there's really a lot of things we need to do, right? Mm-hmm. But first of all, I think is an understanding of what resilient food systems are all about. You know, to me as an academic, you know, resilient food systems are those which have some capacity to deal with disruptions and then bounce back either to the same level of stability or even more, okay, which you know, which are really challenging. So policies and technologies which support protecting production and increasing productivity okay, on the same area of land are important. And they're actually two quite separate things. One is to protect the production base and the other is the productivity itself. You have to increase productivity. Okay? These two interlinked are interlinked but very important. And then, of course, you know you cannot just increase. You also have to, kind of, in a sense, reduce the reduction. Okay? So I'm a big believer that policies and technologies which encourage reduction of food waste and loss during transport, retail and consumption are equally important. Okay, as part of food systems adjusting to the resilience. And we've seen that in let's say, importing countries like Singapore, you know where food waste has become a major issue. And in addition to that, just a couple of other points, because many countries import food. Okay, it is very important that we have policies in place which protect open supply lines for food trade, okay, especially during periods of crisis. Uh, and even, you know, in, let's say in non-crisis situations, those supply lines are very key to enable us to have stability in our know, food supply. Uh, and obviously, the last, my last point really is you also need policies and measures to encourage communities and households to have some level of resiliency themselves by growing some kind of food. as a buffer to periods of shortages. Now, even in, in highly urbanized countries like Singapore, this can be done. Obviously, you know, in countries that are not as urban as Singapore, there's more capacity for households and communities to grow their own food. Yeah, so so that's my kind of uh, short, long answer to your
0: question, Phil. No, it's a, it's an honest answer. I It's it's very good. Um, it certainly is going to take quite a bit to get it get it where everybody wants it. I I guess that there's one competing um, word with resiliency, in relation to sustainability, mm-hmm. and that's a piece I wanted to get to uh, next. Looking at uh, again. Yeah. Same general topic, uh, but I think there's a greater awareness now around people wanting to know, I think, a good, healthy interest around mm-hmm. where does my food come from? How is it grown? Is it grown using sustainable practices? And so I, with that in mind, again, are these mutually exclusive? We've talked about unique challenges around for region smallholder farmers and and uh, their own livelihood as well as food security mm-hmm. uh, being driven. But how do we do that and also ensure sustainability as uh, part of the equation at the same time? Well, first of all, I don't think they
1: need to be mutually exclusive because all farmers do not want to be deprived of their livelihoods and will strive their best to protect whatever they have, their planting practices and so on for the short term and also for the long term. And that's where part of the sustainability discussions come in. But we do know that through lots of research done in many countries that the sustainability of smallholder farmers and farms is linked to the sustainability of the farming systems within which they operate. Okay, so there's a farm, there's a farmer, and then there's a system within which they operate. If you, if you want to talk about sustainability, and one is linked to the other. So we need to talk about sustainable such systems in terms of the environmental friendliness, the economic viability, and then social equity. These all interlinked as well. Yeah? So for farmers to sustain their livelihoods really requires that they do not damage the environment in which they farm. And their farming gives returns which allow them to have a livelihood. That's very key. Oftentimes, we forget about the livelihood issues, just talk about the environment. But they really have to go hand in hand. And, of course, to achieve both also requires, number one, that farmers have the means to produce in a sustainable manner with appropriate technologies. And we may not all agree on the same set of technologies in every country, but we all I think we'll agree that there are certain things that we can do. You know, for example, you know, let's say rational pesticide use, you know, not always of fertilizers, you know, things like that, yeah, which, which are to me very appropriate technologies. And then secondly that society must recognize the worth and the value of smallholder farmers okay? in terms of their contribution to society, okay? So in this regard, consumers too must play their role. Okay? Consumers must be willing to reward small farmers by paying them appropriately for their labor. And we hear so much of the fact that, you know, farm gate prices are a lot lower than what consumers pay, who benefits, questions like that being asked, which really also hits at the heart of how do you make things sustainable? there's going to be equity between the producer and the consumer. Now, of course, at a much higher level, sustainability means having enough for current consumption without jeopardizing the needs of future generations. That's the old Brundtland report, which really was the precursor to all the discussion on sustainability. So back to the fact that we need to ensure farmers grow food in ways which produce enough for the current population, but also in ways which ensure that the land is still in the condition to produce more for a future increased population, which really
0: is a big challenge in that sense. Thank you as well. Another thoughtful answer. Well, we've, we've spoken about a lot of different uh, topics within this general you know, area of food security and the impact from climate change. So uh, I'd like to pivot here at the end. We usually kind of lighten things up a little bit and maybe ask a question that's a little more hopefully optimistic in, in mm-hmm. the sense that we're asking you to look into your crystal ball uh, by maybe a decade or so. If you were projecting ahead a bit for, for Asia and, and some good developments, things that are happening and trending in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Anything, anything you might predict as far as a big positive development for the, the food systems here in Asia? I'll go for a safe bet. Because <laughs> <Okay.
1: laughs> I may not be around in 10 years' time. See what I'm right. I think that there will be increased awareness by consumers mm-hmm. okay, of the importance to have food that is produced sustainably. Using farming systems with low environmental impact, and also low contribution to greenhouse gases. And this will drive governments and the private sector and farmers to adopt farming techniques, which can help fulfill these expectations. That really is
0: my hope. This will help. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's a great hope. I think it's what we. I think most of us share that as well. I think it's a good one to uh, to keep an eye on. Well, we've reached the end here of the, uh, our episode of uh, Five Good Questions. Thank you, Dr. Tang, for doing this. And you're officially off the hot seat. Thank you again for your insights and your perspective today. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, and subscribe. We look forward to bringing you another Five Good Questions interview.